Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the latest live episode of The Free Marketeers. My name is Chris here at the FMF offices in Johannesburg. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Ierloff. Daniel, how are you today? Hello, Chris. Fine, thanks to you. Lovely to be here. Oh, pleasure to have you. We're going to talk about your experiences at the State Capture Commission, State Capture in general, what that was all about. And we'll also discuss some of the implications of the commission for South Africa going forward. I mean, the last week we've seen the, the rule of law from some quarters. People say the rule of law has been held strongly. Other quarters, people say the rule of law has already been undermined up to this point. And we've seen the manifestation of this and various other factors around us now with some of the looting and violence going on. But we'll get into all of that. For those of you who don't know Daniel, he is a partner at the law firm Herter Spies, which specializes in public interest and civil rights litigation. He also teaches commercial law and business ethics at Academia. And Daniel co-hosts the Afrikaans podcast Portlatik and is a senior writer at the Rational Standard. I have linked to the Portlatik YouTube channel in the description. I recommend that you all go and check them out and subscribe to them. I'll also link to his Twitter profile in due course. So Daniel, just to start off with, um, tell us a little bit about the State Capture Commission. I mean, State Capture is obviously linked to the years that former President Jacob Zuma was in, in power, mm -hmm. um, endemic looting and corruption of state resources, state agencies, the hollowing out of capacities and abilities mm -hmm. of the people who used to be there, agencies such as the Revenue Service and others. So tell us a little bit about the commission and what its, what its mission is, as it were. Mm. So the, the State Capture Commission, for those who, who aren't aware, is basically a commission of inquiry set up by President Soro Ramaphosa to investigate uh, state corruption in essence during the past nearly a decade. Um, what, what's quite interesting is uh, it, it's been going on or dragging on at least for roughly three years. And it focuses on uh, alleged corruption in a bunch of state-owned enterprises. So we're talking about Praza, Transnet, um, South African Airways, you know, all ESCOM, all these entities that were quite um, rife with corruption during the past uh, 10 years probably some of them still uh, still quite corrupt at the moment um and how i view the commission is is basically in in two through two lenses the one being a practical lens and the other sort of a symbolic lens because i think in a practical sense it provides the opportunity for some type or form of lawfare uh, and on the other hand, you then, uh, at least in the symbolic sense, you have the opportunity for South Africa to sort of try to deal with um, the corruption that it witnessed during the past decade. So, um, so that's that's the one part of the symbolic, uh, or at least symbolic lens of of viewing the State Capture Commission. I also, to a certain extent, view the State Capture Commission as 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 an attempt to. I almost want to call it talk about state sin and to to address state sin. It's it's a opportunity to try to cleanse South Africa of of the sin without actually really uh, holding people to account. And I think that's the major concern: is the State Capture Commission, although it it you know has lofty goals and and it has um, a good uh, you know ideal, it in the end it it boils down to uh, you know circumventing the justice system in, in in the end these people who are alleged to have been involved in corrupt activity should have been brought to account through the already established criminal law means that south africa has but uh, we we realize that this is sort of a, a compromise between trying to hold people to account without actually really holding people 
to to account. So um, it, it it's been quite interesting the past three years. There have been revelations that have shocked South Africa. There have been revelations that we were aware of, but you know, sort of not aware of the the entire scope um, of of the deeds. And here we sit three years later, and the commission have uh, has asked for another extension of about three months to finalize the commission's hearings and the commission's report. That report will then be submitted by the the chair of the commission, uh, Deputy Chief Justice Zondu, who will then send it to President Ramaphosa. And after Ram President Ramaphosa has had a look at the report, he'll then decide whether or not he'll release it, how how he'll release it, and to what extent you'll release it in the end. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, the State Capture Commission and uh, a bit of my own two cents on how I view it. I wonder whether the president will be shocked at any of the revelations <laughs> in the report, but let's see. <laughs> let's see what happens. Uh, I wanted to ask, obviously, about why you were in front of the commission. I'm assuming it's not because of alleg uh, allegations of corruption, <laughs> but I mean, this is a platform for you to, to sort of talk about what what was the context of you going there? It's interesting to find out the different ways and organizations which have been in front of the Chief Justice and have used the platform, as it were, to try and, I mean, in some ways, I mean, South Africans, despite everything else going on, one can say that many South Africans care very, very deeply about the country and they want mm -hmm. to use all the different avenues, legal avenues that they have to try and at least talk about some of the issues that have happened the last few years and try and fix those. So tell us a little bit about why you were at the commission. So uh, if, if I'm brutally honest, it it was uh, a bit, um, what would you call it? Uh, we we stretched our luck a bit um, trying trying to get before the, the Zondo Commission. We applied to the commission uh, on behalf of AfriForum and what we, uh, the application was to uh, be allowed leave to um, formally uh, uh, cross-examine President Ramaphosa specifically on the topics of his involvement uh, as the ANC's head of CADE deployment during the, these years. And uh, because we, we, what our client felt is, we although there's the, a lot was asked and a lot was said about um, the SOE's involvement in state corruption, not a lot of work focus was put on our current president's role in putting these key people in place, uh, in the places of power within the state-owned enterprises. And we wanted to to highlight his involvement in that regard. Um, but but we knew that it would be a difficult task to get before the Zondo Commission because uh, generally organizations that aren't directly implicated or people or individuals who aren't directly implicated uh, aren't allowed the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. And we were aware of this fact. We, we knew that this would happen. However, um, we, we at our firm, at least, we're quite accustomed to sort of unorthodox approaches to, to law and some legal gymnastics. And we, we I think we got a, quite a decent application and a good affidavit before the commission. And even though we weren't in the end of the day allowed the opportunity to cross-examine President Ramaphosa, we did have the opportunity to stand up before the commission and um, and, and basically lay out our concerns and, and to highlight what we wanted to highlight in any case through the cross-examination. So that was obviously quite good. And the second sort of surprise that came out of our application was that uh, the chairperson of the commission uh, invited us to formally engage with the the evidence team. So the team responsible for leading all the evidence against the the 
let's call it the alleged perpetrators of state corruption, uh, which is a, a wonderful opportunity to to you know engage with these people to provide them with information that they might not. Uh, have at their disposal because what what I don't think it's necessary that people forget this but what people don't realize is AfriForum was quite involved during these years uh, with many of these uh, sort of state capture um, allegations um, because it, it was a, an active civil rights watchdog during this time. Um, AfriForum for example assisted Paul O'Sullivan the forensic investigator where he was basically the, the state tried to bury him in criminal cases. They, at a time, he had eight active criminal cases pending against him, where the state were just trying on every single ground to, to get this guy behind bars, because they obviously did not appreciate the fact that he was uncovering state capture in the middle of state capture. So um, at some point, Paul O'Sullivan went to AfriForum and he said, listen, guys, I, I, I don't have the funds. I don't have the ability to defend myself in eight criminal cases. Will you assist me? And AfriForum said, sure. And and they offered legal services and they paid for counsel in all eight of the, the criminal cases. And uh, so, so AfriForum is quite you know, aware of the extent of state capture during this time. Um, it was not only Paul O'Sullivan, it, it was through its community structures, AfriForum was involved with uh, various municipalities and corruption on that level, through its involvement with uh, state and enterprises like ESCOM. They, they you know, were really aware of what was going on during the time. So we think we have valuable, at least when I say we, I mean AfriForum has valuable information to provide to the commission. That's why we brought the application. And uh, secondly, now that we have this open invitation to speak to the evidence leaders of the commission, we will uh, be able to share this information to hopefully in the end of the day, get South Africa or at least paint an accurate picture of what transpired during the past decade um, so that we, you know, give a true and honest account um, of the corruption at state level during the past 10 years. Daniel, tell us how, I mean, in your objective point of view, I'm sure you will say oh, we, we got exactly what we wanted with the time we had. We, we got great acknowledgments of the damage caused by cadre deployment. I mean, from a lot of, a lot, not enough analysts, but some analysts, I think, and more people are realizing this, it's the, the policies and ideas that the government has implemented for the last 20 years will have an effect. I mean, this is how it plays out, that it informs what programs the government implements, how they interact with the private sector, um, what view they have of their own role and how big they think that should be. So did you get, how was, the, how was the sort of line of questioning, as it were, uh, perceived perhaps by the government or other people who you interacted with at the commission? Was there any sort of acknowledgement that maybe in some slight way cadre deployment might be problematic? And it's not just a case of the specific people or names who were deployed. It's more about the, the idea itself that this is sort of a policy that should be in place. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the, the problem is not the specific people, it's the environment was created where these people were able to loot, steal and, and corrupt state-owned enterprises. Um it, it it's interesting that you ask this question because I'm quite hesitant. Well, I, I'm I'm used to firstly fighting losing cases. We we have a saying in the firm, the art of a losing court case. And that's it's really a thing, is you, you often go into litigation knowing that you, you'll have a tough time, but despite that fact, you you still persist because there's a broader sort of campaigns uh, issue to to take on. 
So um, we, we, we knew that we were going to have a tough time. And you're always sort of aware of the political baggage. I mean, nowadays, every single organization is, is sort of uh, labeled in some fashion. And we, we're aware of that political baggage. Um, but we, we had quite less of a struggle at the commission, especially from uh, Deputy Judge, uh, um, Chief Justice uh, Zondu, when when he realized we're not there for any you know funny reasons we were there with uh, you know good intentions bona fides trying to assist the commission and the moment you go in with those good intentions it it changes the perception that people have about your client and i think that's why we were as successful or at least as successful as we could have hoped for so um in the end of the day i i'm we're quite happy we're quite chuffed we we think we achieved what we wanted to achieve, and um, it, it, I, I don't think there's an acknowledgement of the real problem. To be honest, at the commission, I, I think it's you know it went wrong this time. I, I don't think the, but it's also not it's not the it's not the place for the commission to sort of you know, have an opinion about whether or not cater deployment should have been in place or not it it it's it's there to say well there were a set of rules and these rules were transgressed money was stolen and it wasn't supposed to be stolen but hopefully it, it this forms part of the broader debate regarding state-owned enterprises you know it's the very nature of state-owned enterprises uh, the very nature of cater deployment and the very nature of this really massive state that we have in south africa that's you know ripe for looting uh, and i mean the point is we have an environment where people are able to 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 loot and steal we have the environment where power is vested in a handful of people and hopefully this commission and the work that the people are doing highlights that and that we we look beyond just like you mentioned earlier the individuals the people in these uh, you know, in the past 10 years, you still, and we start to realize perhaps we should address the principle, perhaps we should address the environment that we create where people are enabled and able to do this. If you're, if you're one of those people on the side of defending cadre deployment, just say this wasn't real cadre deployment. Cadre deployment <laughs> yes. hasn't been really tried yet. And then <laughs> that sort of deals with the argument. Uh, I wanted to ask, and I mean, this is just something off the top of my head, but around whether there's any international precedent for this sort of commission has this kind of thing happened in other countries. I mean, I think for us who are here and we, I mean, the work that we do myself at the FMF and a lot of work that you do for your clients, we we're, we read and consume so much of the news. So we maybe just lose sight of the fact that corruption only happens in South Africa, but it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yes. I think when you mix the state with the economy, you're going to create incentives for corruption. Yes. So has this sort of thing been tried anywhere else? So I I, I, th I completely agree with you. I think it's it's not a question of South Africa being you know particularly horrible at at you know this governing thing. It's it's a I would argue it's inherent to the nature of being human. People people aren't perfect. People um, are broken, and it's just a natural consequence of that. Um, th there have been. I wouldn't necessarily call it similar inquiries, but there have been inquiries uh, into corruption. Uh, I mean, it happens all over the world. What What's interesting in, in this, in our case, and, and I mentioned it earlier at the start of the program, is it's sort of, it, it's substituting actual accountability. You know, we, we have a process to deal with corruption. It, it's called criminal law, right? We, we have bodies who taxpayers fund to investigate corruption. 
uh, to prosecute corruption and we have a system to keep corrupt people outside of society uh, and here we're coming in and we, we're sort of trying to reinvent it but i mean it's obvious why why this is happening it's it's because we don't th there are people in power who don't want true accountability they don't want the criminal justice system to you know go its course because um then people will actually end up in jail so it, it it there have been similar similar inquiries you know all over the world people have tried to address corruption we especially see uh, the, these type of commissions where there's sort of a regime change or there's a you know a, a swap in power then people try to to um uh, you know address the corruption of the past or the, the corruption of the previous regime. Um, but, but South Africa is, is quite unique, but it's, it's not necessarily as unique in South Africa. I, I, I see where we, in South Africa, our government have two favorite things. It's a minister, a ministerial advisory committee. And then secondly, some form of inquiry headed by a former judge or a, a current judge. Um, and, and I think it, 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 it fulfills a symbolic role in in the end of the day, trying to um, just calm people down to say, look, we we are addressing the issue. We did do something. We we tried to hold people to account. But in the end of the day, the scope of the this specific state capture inquiry is just too limited. They 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 won't be able to to process. They can't prosecute in in the commission. They can't sentence people. They can't um, you know actually bind people to um justice in the in the end of the day but hopefully the prosecuting authority you know from this there flows a bunch of prosecutions and and we actually do see some form of justice i wanted to ask about the the sort of um defined powers of the commission as it were but you've touched on that so the commission can't for example recommend to the constitutional court you know to do x or y they can't for example tell the minister of police to go and arrest whomever, I mean, he'll go and arrest beach goes regardless. He doesn't need a higher body to tell him to do that. But yeah, so you, if there's anything else you want to say just on the powers of the commission, you know. Well, I, I mean, the, the point is, like I said, they, they can't send anyone to prison. The the, the, mm. the end result of this commission is is a report, right? It's right. a piece of paper. It's going to be quite a thick piece of paper, but it's it's going to be a report and it's going to sit on the desk of President Ramaphosa. Mm -hmm. It's it's not going to be... Um, it's it's yeah it's not going to be recommendations to to the prosecuting authority in the end of the day um and and if if you're quite cynical you can view it as well now president ramaphosa has this massive document of findings by the commission which he's able to use for his own political gain or at least him and his allies political gain um we, we're not sure perhaps it might be that the entire report you know, is 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 uh, in, in the end of the day submitted and made public. Um, the one advantage we obviously have, at least, is everything is televised. You know, people can watch this. You can even today go on YouTube and watch the entire commission, every single hearing, every single evidence uh, piece of evidence that's been been provided or testimony that's been provided. Uh, so, so that at least is out in the open. But you know, the the connecting of the dots that that's not going to be. We we don't know whether or not that will be made public in the end of the day from your reading of perhaps your time there but also if you've watched any of the other um, presentations as well I'm sure you have you don't have enough to keep you busy in your day job so you just spend time watching all the presentations but 
if I were to ask you to sort of predict what you think the report might say kind of thing, do you foresee that the Chief Justice, Deputy Chief Justice will, you know, that it's going to be very harsh on on the, the, the governing party, on the state? Do you think it's going to be a bit more nuanced and a bit more middle of the road, a bit more centrist, as it were? What does your gut feeling tell you about what the report might look like? I, I think it will sort of be quite centrist, quite middle of the road. Um, I mean, we 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 know everything, right? It's it's uh, the media have reported on the, the they've reported on the testimony before the commission, so it's it's not going to be something new. There's not going to be a big bombshell in it. Um, I I think what what we don't know and what we're uncertain about is the recommendation that the deputy chief justice will make in the end of the day. That that's sort of going to be the kicker in in the entire thing. But I I don't expect it to be um you know just we have enough evidence prosecute the people that's it it's done it that's going to be the the end of the road i i i think it's it's it will linger i, I think in the end of the day it's sort of just going to disappear you know slowly fade in fade away into to our uh into our past um because i i again the reason this commission was set up was not necessarily to put people in jail. I, I think it was to try and say, well, we have addressed it. We acknowledge there were problems, but let's look forward. Let's continue. Let's build a South Africa. We, we even heard it last night with President Ramaphosa where, where he... Uh, it was it was the speech that where, where the most words were said, but, you know, nothing of real value was actually mentioned. And uh, but 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 he, he continuously spoke about building a better South Africa, making South Africa you know a good place for the people who who live in it, um, and and I think they're sort of going to take the same line with this. They're just going to say, we've done what we should have done. We'll put it behind us. Let's look forward and and you know actually try to achieve that new dawn that was promised just before the COVID pandemic struck. Do you think placing this sort of whole discussion in the context of the hollowing out of the SOEs and specifically the security cluster, so the, the state security agency, uh, intelligence, you know, one, one has seen the last few days just how, how much those agencies lack capacity, as it were, in terms of preventing wide-scale violence and looting, despite what is being said to, this morning at a media briefing, to, to which I've listened to some of that now. And about how no, they had they are they were prepared and they knew what they were doing. But at the end of, end of the day, reality paints a, a grimmer picture than mere words. Do you think this sort of commission, that the work that the commission is doing, and perhaps other things, will help re sort of strengthen these agencies again? Can we place it in that context of helping the state to build some capacity again? I mean, we talk about the developmental state. I think the state has, has sort of pushed South Africa's underdevelopment, as it were, the last ten years. But just a little, I want to get your thoughts on on how the commission could interact with other sort of state apparatus, as it were. Well, I, I mean, you probably don't get a better example of how these institutions can be. I don't want to call it captured, but can be used for for you know the people in power's own political ends. As uh, the example of the public protector, we we had a public protector where Tudi Malonzella was at the helm for, for what, six years, more than that. And it, it functioned relatively well. It sort of fulfilled its constitutional obligations. And b before that, nobody knew about the public protector. I, I think if you ask the majority of South Africans, uh, do they know who the public protector was before Tuli Maronzella? And I don't even think the entire 5% of the country would be able to tell you. Um, but because Tuli Maronzella got there, she did 
quite a good job in in actually doing what the public protector was supposed to do in some instances but perhaps even expanding the power of the the public protector uh it's it's something that's sort of a little pet peeve of me because i think the constitutional court got it wrong in in that famous case regarding the nkandla report um but uh, and then soon thereafter when her term came to an end we got uh, a new public protector Nkwebane in uh, you know the, it changed it 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 was a toothless organization it 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 didn't do what it was supposed to do because the problem is how and how i see it in south africa is the ANC view the these various institutions as tools you know to 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 achieve their national democratic revolution to try to um, cement power in in their own hands in the end of the day and it's it's the same with the ssa it's the same with the police it's the same with all the intelligence services in south africa and uh, the, the the only thing that happened during this the state capture period of south african history is we had a man who was able to really quickly garner support and tighten his grip of and and in in the end of the infiltrate all these various organizations we we you know bef before this we we had a president uh, at least if starting from 1994 president mandela was president for five years he stopped president becky completed his first term for five years in 2004 and then he immediately started with the, his internal fighting uh with with president uh zuma who at that time was deputy president and he only had about a year or two well at least in 2007 when uh, uh the nc elected zuma as leader of the party but you know th there wasn't enough time but zuma had his entire two terms well not not completely or sort of was cut short a bit but he he, he managed to garner a lot of power in a very short amount of time and infiltrate these various various uh, organizations and he used it he used it to his own political gain um and and that's why we saw this mass state capture and, and corruption in south africa is because he was able to centralize that power but what we need to realize is is it's not unique to president zuma it's it's unique to the ideology of the ANC in the end of the day. It's it's unique to the view that there should be a strong centralized government that you know unifies, controls everything, and tries to to manage uh, an entire republic. So it's it's again, it's it's not about personalities. It's not about President Ramaphosa, uh, President Ramaphosa, President Zuma. It's about the creating an environment where these things are able to happen in the end of the day. I wanted to, if you'll indulge me, discuss a bit more of a philosophical concept, but the the application and the idea of the rule of law, it's thrown around very often. I mean, the president talked about it uh, at length last night. He talked at length about many things and was light on on actual detail, unfortunately, um, the police minister will talk about the rule of law and people should adhere to it. What, in your view, is the rule of law and why is it so important? I mean, even from our perspective, we have a rule of law unit at the FMF. We believe that the rule of law is vital for any sort of prosperous society to have, for any society to have a real chance at prosperity. So what what is it, in your view, and and do you see it being applied going forward in South Africa? So it's actually something that I've been thinking about quite a lot during the past week. I mean, you can just imagine with what we're seeing, you know, on our television sets and 
all the other South Africans are seeing on their newly stolen television sets, that uh, I, I think a lot about the rule of law and constitutionalism in South Africa because uh, people have written quite a lot about it during the past couple of days and, and weeks. And I, I think there needs to be quite a concerted effort to sort of demystify the rule of law and constitutionalism and to, to in some extent, try to, to point out that constitutionalism and the rule of law per se is, is not people always say well it's this western idea it's it's a western construct which which i get to a certain extent because it 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 you know most prominently arose in a bunch of western countries during the past 100 years but in in its very essence the idea of the rule of law is that no person is above the law so it 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 basically means that there's a consistent application of the societal norms and rules that governs that particular society and that idea is, is not unique to Western societies, at least in my view. Um, the, the, our entire world and our history as, as a species is filled with examples where societies and groups of people, communities, follow a set of rules because they, they deem it necessary to, to follow those rules, because there's a, an advantage a societal benefit to following those rules, to adhering to those rules. The question then just becomes, well, what is that set of rules and whether or not those rules are good and create a prosperous society in the end of the day? So I, I, I don't think, I, I don't agree with people who say, well, the rule of law is a Western, a Western idea and therefore it will never work in, in Africa. Um, it, it, it's, in, in the end of the day, it just means, well, will people adhere to the society's norms uh, and, and then the more important question i think becomes well what are those norms what are those rules and that's where the focus should really be we need to create a, a, a set of rules that at least the majority of people are in agreement about that the most people say and agree this is beneficial this is good to build a society and that people agree on on those rules and if that means that we can't get a majority of people in, in, in a country to agree on these rules, then perhaps it means, well, we need to rethink how we group these people, you know, to, together. Perhaps we should think, well, should there not be more autonomy for a province to determine what these rules are? Should, should we not perhaps say um, that cities should be able to have more uh, autonomy to decide what these these rules are? Uh, obviously, in the end of the day, still adhering to the very core principle that all people are equal. Uh, th that's sort of the, the, the you know the, at the heart of the entire thing. Um, but but I, I do think we need to we need to relook at how we approach this because I'm I'm concerned that we we in South Africa we have this massive government trying to impose rules on a very big and diverse country in the end of the day, where I think communities are and and individuals on community level are better able to determine what rules. Um, would work for them specifically. So, uh, the, 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 I mean, it's it's like you mentioned, this is a big philosophical question, and I think we can go on on this topic for for hours. And I, I really like this discussion. Um, but the the past two weeks has really highlighted um, the, the the I think firstly the necessity for for the rule of law and for stringent adherence to the rule of law. But then secondly, I thought I think it had, has highlighted some weaknesses. Um, because you can't say that everyone is is equal before the law when 
Um, you know, we, we see people on our television sets uh, running around looting places. And we know for a fact that the police and our criminal justice system does not have the the power and the resources to actually hold these people to account. But then perhaps just as a last point to, to mention, I, I know people are quite despondent at the moment. We, we, we are quite, we, we look at these scenes and we're frightened. But remember this is, it's again, it's not unique to South Africa. Last year we saw massive riots in, I mean, a, a country like the United States. We see it in the UK. We see it all over the world. It's, it's not a South African thing. It's a human thing. It's, a part of you know being human and unfortunately not all people are as as i would say in afrikaans lacquer people who won't pillage and riot and root in the loot in the end of the day i think that's a very very important point to make and and one shouldn't discount what effect it's had on people to be locked down for over a year and and hearing at every corner, you know, the vaccine program isn't going well. There aren't grants like there were, for example, in the US or the UK. So we we lock people down and then we expect, oh, well, it's just going to be fine for the next five or 10 years. <laughs> Things are just going to go OK. So it's a confluence of factors. And that's obviously part of the work we try and do at the FMF is to try and connect the dots, as it were, and help people to understand what's going on. Nothing happens in isolation, as it were. I mean, this is it's it's I I view this in a similar light as I view the the 2008 xenophobic attacks we saw in South Africa. It's 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 basically people responding to socioeconomic pressures. It's 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 not. I know people they they say it's you know the pro Zuma protest, but it's not. It's it's naked opportunism, um, in in the end of the day, and it's it's sort of a snowball effect. I mean, you can't tell me that. The thousands of people we're, we're seeing on te television sets are all acting, you know, with one goal in mind. It, it's, it's just ridiculous. All those individuals have different goals in mind, right? One person might, might loot a shop right because they legitimately have no food for that evening. And this is the best way to actually survive. Others are frustrated because they've been locked down for over a year. Others are, you know, it, it, others are criminals and they're using this as an opportunity um, it, 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 to, to try to paint a picture that, you know, there's this one size fits all uh, reason why the people, why, why this is happening is, is naive and it's short sighted in the end of the day. Um, it, but, but again, it, it comes back to that. We, we want to be able to label people, put it into a box because it's easier for us to to digest. It's easier for us to understand. So we, we just say, oh, it's it's all prosuma. Other people just say, oh, it's all criminals. Um, you know, and, and it's not just one of those things. It's it's a variety of things because in the end of the day, each and every person involved is an individual with their particular circumstances, with their particular things to deal with. To go back to your previous, to my, the the, before this previous question, the, the second to previous one and your answer, just about, I wanted to get your take on what would be your ideal constitutional or political dispensation, as it were. I mean, one can immediately think of something like federalism. You can think of the Canton system, our current system, you know, parliamentary majority, that kind of thing. I, I don't think you're going to tell me that you're a monarchist, but who knows what, what answer you're going to come up with. So any, anything you wanted to expound on in, in that area, if you, if you were able to draw up a new dispensation um, sort of in that way for South Africa, if you could. I, I think that the problem is, is I, my idea is like one of 60 million and other ideas in South Africa, right? So if I come up with the, the solution that I think is great for me, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not guaranteed that the rest of the, 
uh, uh, 60 million South Africans would would necessarily agree. I, I think we, I think the time is ripe to to have a look at electoral reform in South Africa. I think um, the the time is right to reconsider the relationship between South Africans and the state. Uh, and I think it's becoming more and more clear. You know, every single day we realize that th this isn't working. And the other thing that I, I I'd really like people to to think more about is. The, the the idea of a state shouldn't be as static as as we envision it. I, I think we, you know, we we look at we we think about the USA and we think, oh well, they have their constitution and it's almost three hundred years old, and or more than three hundred years old, and and they've just stuck with that. But there have been constitutional amendments. The the, the society, the American society, has changed during you know the past. 300 years lo and behold who would have guessed that you know societies actually change and the same thing in south africa is i i i, I would rather us you know be anchored to a set of values that we we agree with you know values that uh, uh, are aligned with liberty and freedom and allowing people to prosper and then changing sort of the formal framework as needed right um but but we we have to have that core and if we have that core, then we're able to to change it. And the other thing is, it I I would argue that we can't have one solution, one constitutional framework for an entire country with nine provinces, eleven official languages, millions of different people, and that there should be the devolution of power should include the ability for some people to to a greater or lesser extent hand over power to whichever authority they'd like to to hand over or to take away some of that power to that authority um the, the point is a government in the western cape is not going to look the same uh, to a government in limpopo a, a government in the east of pretoria is not going to look the same as a government in uh, you know the middle of the eastern cape and and there should be that room to construct um construct a framework that that you know addresses all of the concerns the various people's concerns if if i had to suggest like one uh, approach to to the you know the entire country is is i, I like personal responsibility and accountability and, and that's why i quite enjoy the uk's model where they have elected representatives that are from those communities they're from those uh, uh, um you know wards or districts or or um constituencies in in the uk and i think we we should have a combination of that in on the one hand but not necessarily you know having those representatives represent people on a national level but rather have that representation on a on a provincial level and then from there they're delegated to to a national uh, legislative body i think that's a it's an approach that would would work better, um, and and it's sort of aligned with what we already see in our constitution. Is we we have various functions that are already um, vested in provincial level. You know, they are provincial competencies. I think that list can be expanded. The national list of competencies should be shrunk a bit, and then uh, the provinces can have a bigger say. And that the provinces are then governed by a, constitu a constituency basis. Now, I wanted to ask you, and this isn't really part of the, the broader discussion, so I'm throwing a bit of a curveball at you. But uh, again, this is why I recommend people go and subscribe and listen to Portlatik because every week they cover uh, the, the most pressing issues in the country, which range, range from economics to social issues to politics. So I'm sure Daniel will be more than capable to answer this. But looking forward to later this year, 
if we go ahead with the local government elections, how do you see it playing out kind of thing? Can you can you look gaze upon your crystal ball and tell us a bit about how that might shake out and possible implications thereof? If you tell us, for example, that the EFF is going to win the majority of provinces, you know, how is it going to play out? What do you think? So, uh, well, uh, first, the first question is when it's going to happen, when when we'll actually see elections. And then the second thing is uh, how it will play out. I, I do think that these elections, they're going to be quite interesting. Uh, I think we're, we're going to have a few curveballs here and there. Um, what people need to realize is municipal elections tend to favor bigger parties. Uh, it, it's not people people aren't as willing to give their vote to to a smaller party. Uh, in in these t type of elections, so we we've seen traditionally that was where the DA did really well five years ago. Uh, is is at this election because they're big enough that people are willing to give them their vote, but they're not too small that people aren't. Um, so I, I think we're going to see, I, I think we're going to see the DA stabilize in a way, uh, and the DA is going to think, well, this is great. You know, we we've we've uh, turned the corner. We're we're back, baby. Um, but but I don't think. Um, it's necessarily going to be because of a change within the DA. I think it's just purely going to be because of the nature of this this election. I think the ANC is going to see um, a further decline, and I, I think there's there are going to be some interesting things happening in KwaZulu Natal because there's there's a bit of a power and leadership vacuum there at the moment. Uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, the, the 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 monarch, the head of the Zulu nation, passed away. Um, in, in Carter Freedom Party are sort of, you know, just drifting at the moment. And I think people people in Guazunatal that usually voted ANC are disillusioned. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see who fills that that gap. Will it just, will people still vote for the ANC? Will there be an, an you know, will the vote shift to, to another place in, in KZN? Uh, I think that's going to be a very interesting part of the election to, to keep an eye out. And then obviously you know, I think all eyes will be focused on the metros. We're, we're going to have a keen eye on on Twane. Uh, we're going to watch um, Johannesburg, the Nelson Mandela Bay Metropolitan Municipality, and uh, that's that's sort of where I think the most um, the most room is for for a party to really make make waves. So, if I can perhaps summarize it in a nutshell, I think. The DA will will do better than they did in the national election. I think the ANC is going to continue to decline. Um, regarding the EFF, perhaps just to sort of deviate off, off topic, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if the EFF actually do win a municipality anywhere in South Africa because I, I think they're quite scared of that happening, actually, because I, they don't have any management and administrative, uh, you know, experience and it's it's one thing you know to go to to the you know municipal legislator or the provincial legislator in your red overalls and uh, you know just complain about the state of affairs and it's a different thing to actually govern as the da's learned uh, during the past five years so um it, it's going to be interesting to see where they do actually if they win a municipality what they do with that power and then how people respond to their governance of that particular municipality and i think there's there's a chance of that perhaps happening um in the in the election uh, at the end of the year but then perhaps as a last point to to mention is in south africa this type of of electoral change happens incrementally we're, we're not going to see a you know a big 
10 15 point uh, a change in 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 votes for different parties it, it's going to you know sort of slowly but surely change and then we're going to get to a day where power does eventually swap hands and and that's going to be a very crucial time i think for for our democracy I wanted to get your your quick thoughts. I mean, we've still got about fifteen minutes left, so it doesn't have to be rapid fire questions, as it were. But just around the the lockdown, because uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been involved in some cases around some of the regulations and and the lockdown itself. I mean, every I think it was yesterday. I did, yeah, the the state of disaster was extended again by another month, and as far as, far as I know, this can be sort of done indefinitely. I did think last night. I, I was worried that the president might declare a state of emergency. And part part of the, the sort of justification for that could obviously be the violence and the looting, but also COVID cases and say, oh, the state isn't managing, this is a national health emergency, let's do a state of emergency with whatever minutiae that might involve. But just your, your thoughts on the lockdown, I'm guessing you will think it's going to last for a, much longer than, than I think a lot of us hope, but just your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so we, 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 our firm was quite, quite involved with a bunch of cases. I think at the, at the end of last year, I wrote a, a short blog for the firm's blog where we counted, I think, 23 different cases that the, the firm did. And it ranged from, you know, reopening schools to exporting parrots to, um, you know, uh, the slow vaccination rates in, in South Africa. So it, it really was quite a wide variety of, of different cases for a wide variety of, of clients. Um, I, I, my general, or perhaps let's start at the beginning, uh, your question regarding, will, will it be extended? I think it will, will be extended. I think the only potential, uh, I think there are two ways for the state of disaster to, to be stopped or extension thereof to be stopped. The first one is uh, by a court case that they go in and people argue, which I think is a solid argument that the, the look the, the the state of disaster was declared in march last year right and there were certain circumstances that gave rise to or at least informed the decision to enact a state of disaster those circumstances have now changed we're not still in march 2020 so there's an argument to be made that you can't keep on extending the state of disaster based on the circumstances of more than a year ago so that's the one one potential um way of the state of disaster stopping. The second one is that there's just no way for the ANC to extend it because people have been vaccinated, COVID cases have dropped, the mortality rates dropped, and there's no reason for we for us to still be in, in a state of disaster. And regarding, you, you mentioned that there was this fear that uh, last night we might see a state of emergency. I, I just want to point out the difference between a state of disaster and a state of emergency because I, I think there's a bit of confusion regarding that. So a, a state of emergency is a constitutional um, matter. So, so the constitution en enables national government to enact a state of disaster and national government does that through parliament. What we're seeing at the moment and how South Africa has been governed during the past 15 months is not a state of emergency. The ANC, I think, have very cleverly cleverly and, and specifically not gone that route where there's parliamentary oversight uh, of the entire process. They went through the D Disaster Management Act and they enacted a national state of disaster. And the problem with the DMA, the Disaster Management Act, is it does not place a limitation on the number of extensions of a state of disaster. 
the there is currently a private members bill before parliament or it's going to serve before parliament soon i saw a copy of the bill yesterday where they want to amend the dma so that it includes a provision that the moment a state of disaster is declared by national government that the relevant national or provincial legislator then has the power to determine whether or not it, it should be extended which is good because it it just places you know an extra layer of oversight uh, at the moment you know the the if you really look at it the only person that needs to be convinced that the state of disaster should be extended is the minister of cocta that's it because national the the dma allows for the relevant cabinet member being the minister of cocta to decide whether or not it should be extended um so i i, I think it's it's a crucial amendment to the bill i think um I don't think the NC are going to be as amenable to to amend it, specifically considering that the, the amendment bill is not coming from the ANC but from other parties. Uh, but it's 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 a crucial bill uh, because we don't want a repeat of what we've seen during the past 15 months. Um, in the end of the day, uh, Chris, perhaps just remind me that this. I think there was a second or sort of an ancillary question that I might be missing now. No, I think you've covered the, the broad scope of what I was looking at. And I'm glad that you, you sort of ended on that note because the a crucial point that I wanted to get your thoughts on is just possible amendments and changes to the constitution coming forward. I mean, you'll be hopefully involved with a lot of this kind of thing. An obvious thing that one can think about is expropriation without compensation and amending section 25 of the constitution. But anything else that, that people, that citizens should be aware of and comment on and, and advocate mm. against that, that you think is on the horizon? Yeah, so many, so many things. <laughs> um, I, 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 about a year, no, more than a year ago, just before the COVID pandemic, I, I thought there were three. I thought it was uh, e EWC, the NHI, and prescribed assets. Mm -hmm. um, and and now the, the ANC have decided to throw, throw uh, firearm ownership into that mix as well, which I think is, is absolutely crucial. Um, I, I, I must say, I don't think these protests could have come at a better time to sort of show how important it is that that South Africans who lawfully own firearms should be able to to own firearms for self-defense reasons. Um, so it, it is quite funny to me to a certain extent that that we're seeing this rise at the moment, um, you know, given the fact that we are in the middle of a comment period for the amendment of the Firearms Control, Control Act. Um, so I think those four things, they threaten, you know, fundamental um, principles that I think are very important. And perhaps a fifth one, which I'm not too concerned about because I think it, it will be stopped in the end of the day, but it pertains. So, I mean, if you, if you just think about it, EWC is property, crucial, crucial principle. NHI is your, your healthcare and, and uh, to an extent also your property because it's an expropriation of your medical aid for the state. Um, prescribed assets, again, your, your own money. Firearms is, is your right to life and to protect your, your liberty and property. And then the fifth one that uh, is, is well, the comment period just ended, but there'll undoubtedly be more uh, opportunities for comment, is the amendment to the Papura Bill. And what that basically in, entails is government have um, proposed an amendment to the Papura Bill. For those who don't know what the Papura Bill is, it's the protection of uh, uh, the promotion of equality and protection against unfair discrimination act. And it, it it's a piece of legislation that regulates hate speech, discrimination, uh, etc. And this amendment bill 
uh, the, the bill's already on our you know legislative books, but they've now proposed an amendment to allow for hate speech which isn't done intentionally. So for it, it, it entirely makes it subjective. So you can be guilty of hate speech whether or not you intended to, you know, actually spread hate speech or not. Um, so so that, that's obviously quite concerning is the fact that um, you can now, you know, accidentally be be found guilty of, of hate speech. Um, and, and the bill places a bunch of obligations on organizations to uh, have policies in, pla in place regarding hate speech. It is another administrative burden. Not only do you have to do your taxes, uh, you know, your municipal accounts and all those things, uh, BE compliance, now you also have to have this policy in place. Um, so, so the Peter Amendment Bill really is crucial for freedom of speech because in the end of the day, what it does is it enables people in authority to, to determine which speech is acceptable or not. And I would argue that's the, the fifth really crucial piece of legislation currently serving before our, our legislature that people need to comment on, people need to get involved, and people need to have their voices heard while they still can. And then in terms of, of citizen activism and being participants in our constitutional dispensation, Apart from becoming clients of your firm, uh, what what sort of advice would you have for people? Um, you know, you mentioned submissions, comments on certain bills. Um, any any other advocacy work that you would want to recommend, and organisations that you'd want to highlight? Well, you've you've uh, given this wonderful opportunity where I can where I can brag about all our our fantastic clients. I mean, our firm does work for. Uh, AfriForum, Solidarity, Dear South Africa. We've done some work for the IRR. We've even done some work for for the FMF. Um, uh, we we do work for Action Society, which is a gender-based violence or a civic group. So I mean, all these organisations are excellent organisations to support to um, <coughs> support financially and with uh, participating in their campaigns. But but even more importantly, and I I really do think that all of these clients would agree with me and they won't mind me sort of trying to shift the the limelight from them is start in your own street right that that's the biggest most effective place where you can affect change is i i always tell people i think one of the biggest lie we tell tell children is you can change the world not because it's not true it but because it 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 it, it makes children not think about their immediate surroundings um, and and that's the most important thing. I can tell you, we recently moved uh, to to a new house, and while I was uh, there, was a um, the gate was open, and they were take there was a take a lot delivery van, and I was collecting these packages. And now the lady staying next door, who I haven't met, walked to me, and she introduced herself, and she said to me, "Yeah, you know, two years ago they decided they all pulled together and they put in solar uh, lights on on the street lights. They replaced it themselves. They did it on their own. And I thought, well, that's that's amazing because we, we're living in a, a, a town at the moment where the municipality is completely dysfunctional. And here, five people, you know, put some money together, put in solar lights. And for the past two, three years, they now have street lights that work, you know, permanently. Um, and, and that's where you really start with, with change is start with your street when you're done with your street start with your your you know neighborhood start with your local park um, that's the best place to actually affect change um and 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 then you know all the other things on the national scale then you go and you support all these wonderful organizations that advocate for your freedom and your liberty 
no better note on which to end. So, Daniel, thank you very much for your time and your insights this morning. I've greatly enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you, Chris. No, it was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed being here. And thank you to, to all the people who tuned in and uh, yeah, for the wonderful opportunity. And thank you for the excellent work that you guys at the FMF are doing and that you're doing with this show. Uh, if those of you watching now and listening to this later, if you found value in this episode, please remember to like the video and also share it on your different social media platforms and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also recommend that you subscribe to Podlatik. You can find them on YouTube. I'll link to their channel below. But you can also find them on all good um, podcast apps such as Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, etc., etc. Uh, I hope you all have a good day. Uh, stay safe out there and so far as you can. Take care of yourselves, your families, and your communities. Protect your property as much as you can. Uh, we'll talk to you all again very soon. Until next time, take care.